0: Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Hey, man, how are we doing this morning, everybody? fantastic. Happy St. Paddy's Day, the one day a year where everybody's Irish, right? It's good. We are starting a new series this morning. We're calling it Greater Love, just to give you kind of a glimpse of where we've been and where we're going. We started this year talking about prayer. And we we talked about a spiritual discipline of prayer, how prayer is how we talk to God, how prayer is how God changes us, how prayer is how God changes the world around us, how unanswered prayers doesn't mean that God's not listening, but He's doing something if we trust Him. And then we spent six weeks, and we talked about what it would look like if we prayed like Jesus, we did the Lord's Prayer. And we're starting a new series called Greater Love, Love Like Jesus, and then On Easter, we're going to start another series called Greater Life, Live Like Jesus, because the resurrection allows us to live into the freedom that the resurrection gives through the blood of Jesus. It's beautiful. And so this whole spring semester is really pressing into the person and work of Jesus, how he lives, how he loves, and how he prays. And today we're going to start a five-week series that's going to take us to Easter, and it's all about the idea of how Jesus loved. And we're going to spend all of our time in John 13. Because in John 13, what he does is he sits his disciples around a table and he talks about what love might look like. But in order to do that, I'm willing to bet if you grew up in churches, you've heard more sermons on love than anything else. And here's the deal. That's a great thing. That probably should happen. But we have to acknowledge when we bring up a big concept like love, we have to acknowledge that we all carry baggage into it. And the first thing is that we use the word love just way too much. We love to say the word love, and when we love to say the word love, the concept of love is a little diluted, right? And so when we do those things, we also carry in baggage that our culture says love is. So I just want to track for a little while, a couple seconds, so I want to track how we've defined love culturally, because I think that matters. If you're a Beatles fan, they started this whole thing by saying all you need is love, Right? Love is our greatest good. Love is what you aspire to. If you have love, you don't need anything else. There you go, John Legend. And I forget his wife's name, you know. Um, and so you have this idea that love is our base good that we ascribe towards, and it fills us up. I was talking to somebody this week, and they brought up another example. I, I got to be honest. I didn't know what this was. I wasn't around for this. If you were, don't feel old, feel wise. And (laughs) so I had to look this up. It's actually, I didn't know this. It is one of AFI, the American Film Institutes. It's number 13 on their most quoted movie quotes of all time. It's from a movie called, and this is the quote, Love Means Never Having to Say You're Sorry. I don't know what that is. But people know it. And here's my thought. If this is true, I hate my wife, right? Because I say I'm sorry a lot, okay? Sometimes I don't even know what for. I just think it fixes problems, and I'm a pragmatist, you know? And so love is all we need. Love means never having to say we're sorry. We carry these baggage into how we define love. Yet the Jerry Maguire love, which is love completes us, you know? This really beautiful sentiment that I love you, and because I love you, you complete me. And, and we see, honestly, to get serious for a second, I mean, We see how these different ideas of what love does affects how we see it. I have read too many articles that say if you're not married, you're not whole, and that's not what Jesus says about you at all. That's not what Paul says about himself. So the idea that love the love of somebody else does not complete you. You are complete because God made you and gave you his image. So you have these ideals of what love is and how we need love. And it didn't just start with kind of the modern media. It went far back beyond that. Plato says this about love. Love is a grave mental disease. I don't think he had many friends. (laughs) Because he said this to them when they said, I love you. Somebody said, Plato, I love you. And he said, that's a grave mental disease. And then they left, you know. Uh, There is uh, a Woody Allen quote I love. And I like putting Woody Allen quotes in sermons because most people don't think they belong there. He said... I was nauseous and tingly all over. I was either in love or I had smallpox. <laughs> Great. And then there's a New Zealand writer, and she says, love is blind, marriage is the eye-opener. Yeah. And that's a, that's a, a rift on Ian Cook. Shout out to Ian Cook, man. He had two jokes around here for 20 years. And one of them was, you don't know what love is until you get married and then it's too late. (laughs) He said that over and over to our high school students when he led their groups, you know? This idea of love is defined by who we are. It's defined by what we read in scriptures. It's defined by how our parents talked about it and lived it out. It's defined by the songs we listen to and the movies we watch. Love's a broad concept, but it's one that we all know and know well, and a word that we use probably way too much. And so tonight, today, excuse me, and for the next month, we're going to talk about Jesus's version of love. Because where we're going to be in John 13 is really the culmination of the relationship between Jesus and his disciples. He's about to go to the cross, like hours away, about to go to the cross, and he knows it, and they don't. And he sits them down around a table, and he says, let me talk to you guys about what matters. And he uses the word love over and over and over again. And he says, this is what it's going to look like. These are some characteristics of it. This is what you need to model. And so for the next five weeks, we're going to talk about what it looks like. We're going to talk about some characteristics that it has. And we're going to talk about how we live it out well. Before we get into the scriptures this morning, let's start like we always start. We come together with two goals on Sunday. We gather to know more about Jesus and about God, so we dive into the scriptures knowing there's no end, to how much we can know about God, because he's bigger than us, and that's beautiful. And then we want to experience God as we worship, because we trust that the Spirit of God residing in the people of God will meet you right where you're at and speak to you. And say, this is where I have you and this is where you're going. We trust that when we open the scriptures, the supernatural happens, that God meets us right here, right now. And it's beautiful. And so we want to pray for two things. One, that you just have an open spirit to what God's spirit might be doing in your life. That we don't approach today with a critical spirit, but with one of a learner and of a Jesus follower. And one that says, God, teach me. So I'm going to ask that you pray for yourself silently and ask that your spirit might be open to God's leading today. And then, two, pray for me, like always, that I don't say things that make people write me emails. Okay? Fantastic. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful for our gathering today, like every Sunday. When the people of God come together, it reminds us all there's more important things than me, than us, than than what's going on in their lives. It reminds us of the bigger story that you're writing in our world, and I need to be reminded of that often. So today, as we open the scriptures and talk about a broad concept of love, I pray that you guide us and teach us spirit. I pray you meet us where we're at. And I ask if you're comfortable, just take a couple seconds to yourself and pray that the spirit of God might speak and lead you this morning. And I ask that you pray for me, that God might use my preparation and use my words to be encouraging and edifying and ultimately point you closer towards his character and leave us wanting to follow God more. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. John 13, if you've got a Bible, let's go there. You can just dog mark that because we're going to be there for a while or so. But let me set up the context while you're turning there. This is the Passover, the Passover Eve in the Jewish culture. It is one of the high holidays, the bigger days of the year, that they celebrated the Exodus. They celebrated God delivering them, and they hoped that God would deliver them again. But this was a special Passover because Jesus is in Jerusalem. And he's welcomed by palm leaves and donkeys. And people are overflowing with the possibility that the redeemer they waited for might finally be here. They're looking to Jesus saying, we're not going to be controlled by Rome. We have a new Messiah. And the disciples know it because they walked in with him. The disciples know it because... They've been with him for three years. This is a culmination of their relationship for the last three years. They're a rabbi in Jesus and the disciples in the 12. And we did a whole series on it called Dust last year. And there was a phrase in the Hebrew that said, may you get the dust of the rabbi always on you. or May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And what that meant was, if you followed a rabbi, you asked them specifically right when you followed them, do you think I can be just like you? And if they thought that you had the capacity to be like them, they said, follow me. And so for years, as a 12 and 13 and 14-year-old Jewish boy, everywhere they went, you went with him. I'm talking everywhere. Where they stayed, you stayed. Where they ate, you ate. And you just listened and learned and asked questions as they taught through who God was and their interpretation of the Old Testament scriptures. And so everywhere they went, literally, as they kicked up dust when they walked, it covered you. This is three years of the disciples, And this moment that we sit in on at the table with His 12 is (laughs) three years of growing together. Because sometimes we read the scripture and we think that the disciples started mature. We think the disciples started knowing this is Jesus, why would I not follow him? That doesn't seem to be true. The disciples like you and me grew into their understanding of all that Jesus was and we see it. One of my favorite stories is in Mark 4. At the beginning of them following Jesus, and in Mark 4, what you see is you see the disciples on a boat. Four are professionals at being on boats. There's a storm, and there's a lot of water, and the boat is taking on water. And they look up at Jesus, and they say this in Mark chapter 4, verse 38. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? They didn't say Lord. They didn't say Jesus. They didn't say save us. They just said, you're a good teacher, rabbi. Don't you care if we die? Do you care at all if we die? It showed that they knew who Jesus was. They thought he was a good teacher. But they didn't trust that he could save. And they definitely didn't think that he was the Lord yet, you know? And then Jesus got up off the cushion and he said a couple words. And the whole sea went completely still. And it says they were in awe of what just happened. Because that would kind of get me too, you know? And so... From there, they started asking questions about who is this man that we're following. And you kind of see a high point, one of them, as they understand more of who Jesus is in a moment when they're talking in Matthew 16. And Jesus says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, the one that always spoke first, good, bad, or indifferent. He said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Big moment. One of the first times his disciples put that together. And so they're growing in their understanding of who they're following. He's not just a dude. He's not just a guy. He's more than that. He's a savior and he's a son of God. Big, big claims. He's been building for three years. There's a moment in John 9. It's also in Matthew 17 when he's transfigured, which just means that he let a couple of the disciples see his full state of glory. It's another level. That's when you kind of let somebody in and see who you really are when you invite them over to your home but don't clean first kind of moment. You know, (laughs) this is how we really live. And they go, okay, right? So this was beautiful. And it says in Matthew 17, he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. This is my son whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him, God said. It's a big moment for his disciples. And so they're growing in their understanding of who Jesus is. And in the middle of that, don't mishear me, they still didn't put it all together. Like you and me, they never became perfect. Right before Jesus goes to the upper room with his disciples, there's a moment in Mark chapter 10 when two of his disciples look at him and they say, let us sit at your right and your left in glory, positions of power and authority. And so they're acknowledging that he belongs in glory. They're affirming his deity, but they do not understand what his kingdom's all about. this moment that I get it, but I'm so far away. And I feel like that often when I follow Jesus. And so because of that, because of three years of learning, we find ourselves in the upper room in John 13. Jesus knows what's next, and they don't. They just knew there's this brooding anticipation over all the land of what Jesus is going to do. And this meal is the most important meal in the Jewish calendar year. It's the most important. he says, let's do it together, the 12 of us. And a meal in the first century was different than a meal now. A meal in the first century was a mark of intimacy. It was hours long, and it happened with friends and family. And if it happened with acquaintances, they weren't by the end of the meal. Meals signified relational closeness. Jesus loved meals because he wants to be close with his people. N.T. Wright said this about meals. When Jesus himself wanted to explain to his disciples what was forthcoming and what his death was all about, he didn't give them a theory. He just gave them... A meal, right? It's this beautiful moment that they'd built for for three years. So, as we go throughout this morning, we're gonna kind of it, it's a conversation we're gonna follow, and so we're gonna be in John 13 1 through 2 and 3 and 4, and then skip down a bit, and then be in 14 a little bit, and here's why. I don't know how your family meals go around the holidays when you guys all get together. I know how mine go. My family, I am a little ADHD, and so they kind of jump around a bit. We'll bring something up at the beginning and then talk about things and then bring it back up in the middle and then talk about things and then bring it back up again, especially if we're excited or mad or yelling at that point. And sometimes I'll just do it because I like conflict in my family, you know? And I'll say something, and my mom will look at me like, why are you doing that? And I'm like, because it's fun. You just sit back, you know? And so, this is no different. What happens in our text and why we're going to jump around a little bit in linear fashion is because they're having a conversation over a meal. And this idea that we see in the first verse pops up as they're having the meal. It's a couple-hour meal. And so we're going to kind of follow one conversation thread that Jesus leads with at the very beginning. And as we do that, I'm going to hopefully in parts tell you guys a story about me when I first got to Crossroads. Um, It was 10 plus years ago, and I got hired as the middle school director, I think was my title, I forget. Um, And so I took the job because I loved Crossroads. I took the job at that point because one of the things that we did as a student ministry back then, we still do now, is... We let our high school students lead our middle school small groups. I love how we equip our people. And that, back then, you see it more now. It was rarer back then that we'd let them do that, you know? Because sometimes it scares parents. I'm going to have a 16-year-old teaching my kid, yes, yes, you are, you know? Uh, we're going to do it and, and monitor well and train well, and we don't give them a whole lot of freedom to go off book like I'm out with some adults. But, yeah, man, we believe that students can lead other students. We believe in equipping. And so my office then was downstairs. Yeah, the room that we meet in now that we call the gathering space, we called the dungeon back then because that was cool. And it looked like high school kids designed it. There was ice school lights hanging everywhere and it had a smell. And um, my office back then, it was great. So my office, I was the only one, everybody office upstairs, but my office was downstairs in that little room if you've been there off to the side. This a little small room and I was just down there all alone. There was a washer and dryer 20 feet away. I did all my laundry at work, you know. It was, I was a single dude, and I was like, this is fantastic. And there was a two-way mirror there, so you could look in, and just you could see your reflection, but I could actually see the whole room. So even when people came to see if I was down there, I would just turn the lights off and pretend like I wasn't. It was great. I want to go back to those days, you know. <laughs> and so we had this thing called Tuesday Nights. It's where middle school kids meet. And we had high school kids lead it. And and this one year, I was brand new, probably five, six months in. So I I came on staff in November, finished out that year, and then kind of hit the ground running and and took over the lead team in the summer. We had a group of students that just graduated. They were all seniors. There's nine or ten of them, maybe more, I forget. Um, And Tuesday nights was this place they loved. They started going there in middle school, you know. They created this community around it. And then from there, they started on the serve team, which we let freshmen and sophomores do at the time, which means that you just set up stuff and clean up our games. And then if you want to, you can be a leader in training for a year. Your junior year and then your senior year, you can lead a group with a couple other seniors. And so for seven-ish years, six years, these seniors made Tuesday nights their home, their community, their safe space. I mean, they loved it. Here's the problem is that they came to Tuesday nights and they graduated and then they kept coming to Tuesday nights. Right? But it was their safe space. And so um, we're going to finish the story as we keep going. But, but I thought there needed to be a change. And that's kind of what we pick up in our text here in John 13. Let's read it together. In the first verse, Jesus, just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that his time had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now loved them to the very end. And real quick, let's talk about the extent of the love that Jesus had for his people. It doesn't say he loved them a lot. It doesn't say he loved them a ton. It doesn't say he loved them like more than anything else. It says he loved them to the very end. The word there, to the very end in the Greek, literally means completed. It's the same word that Jesus uses on the cross when he says, it is finished. And what he means by that is, I love you more than anything else. And we have phrases kind of like this, but not like this in our culture, right? So one of the ones that I run into all the time that I'm going to be honest with you guys about, I don't understand when people say I love you to the moon and back, right? I don't get it because it doesn't make sense to me. One, how does love extend to the moon? It's not a Wi-Fi signal. But two, I don't get it because if you do the math, it doesn't make sense. So let's do the math real quick, okay? Because I like this. It is 477,710 miles to the moon and back, all right? All right. On average, the person in the United States drives their car 12,000 miles a year. If you drive your car 12,000 miles a year and you drive 477,710 miles, what you're saying is, my love lasts 40 years, right? So what you're saying in that moment is, I love you for 40 years. I don't get that phrase, and I'm an analytical dude, so I mapped out the math, all right? And so what we have to understand... What Jesus is saying isn't just that I love you to the moon and back, and maybe we should say, like, the Buzz Lightyear thing to infinity and beyond if you want to stick with the galaxy stuff. But what he's saying when he says my love is complete is that my love can't progress any farther because there's nowhere else to go. So it's different than how we love each other. I love my wife more today than I did six months ago because we've had a kid and because I see her as a mom and that deepens my affection for her. I'm really hoping that goes the other way too. I don't know, though, right? I'm really hoping that as our kid grows up and as we enter into different life stages and I've talked to people that I admire that tell me this is true if you work on your marriage, that your love deepens. That we might not be as as pretty, but we still love each other more because we've been through more life together. My love always has a place to grow with my wife. Jesus is saying, my love is so full, it's complete. It can't grow anywhere. And that is how God loves us. You and me. That's why we believe in grace. That's why we say that you can do nothing today, nothing today to earn more of God's love tomorrow because it's full to the uttermost, it's completed. Meaning that there's nothing you can do to make God like you or love you more because there's nowhere else for it to go. And the flip side of it is there's nothing you can do to make him take it back. And so Jesus looks at his disciples and says, this is how much I love you. I love you so much that there's nowhere else for my love to progress It is completely full and mature for you. It's a beautiful sentiment. And I don't think it's something any of us could ever say about anybody else in our lives, you know? It's something only God can say about his people, being and defining what love is. And so he says, I love you to the uttermost." And here's where the tension comes in. I wish he just said, guys, I love you, and I can't wait to keep living with you. He doesn't. He says at the beginning of that, just before a Passover feast, Jesus knew that a time had come to depart from the world to the Father. So Jesus says, I love you in a way that you'll never understand or can love anything else, but it's bigger and better, and because of that, I'm leaving you. That doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense because when we talk about what love is, most times I think our initial reaction to the things we love is to hold on tight and to not let go. To hold on tight to the things we love, and if things change around us, our love will endure through the change. Not our love is the cause of the change, which is kind of what Jesus is saying here. It flips on its head what I believe to be true about love. I was just yesterday holding my kid, and my wife looked at my kid and just said out loud, stop growing. And I, as a short man, I said, don't ever say that out loud again. You know, grow. And she said, it just seems like she's growing bigger every day. I said, that is what I understand to be the point, Right? And and she said, but it's just so hard, because I just want to hold her, and I don't want this moment to change. Jesus says, I love you to the full, but I'm leaving. something hard to understand. So I gathered these leaders down in my office that was small with a mirror in front of it, and we sat in there, and I said, hey, guys, how you doing? They said, good. This is kind of one of my first conflict moments at the CBC, leading anything, and And I said, uh, I was kind of nervous because I didn't know these kids very well. And and this church, like I said, it was was their church, not my church at this point. They'd been here all their lives. I'd been here six months. And I sat them down and I said, guys, I love you. And they said, okay. And I said, and because of that, um, I'm going to have to ask that you not come back to Tuesday nights anymore. (laughs) And they said, I'm sorry, what? And I said, I love you guys, but this isn't your space anymore. This isn't your space. I said, you need to go somewhere else and serve. And that didn't go very well for me. <laughs> they, they looked at me and they didn't understand what was happening. They looked at me and they didn't understand why I was asking them to leave. They looked at me and they didn't understand why love looked like them changing something they loved. That's what Jesus does. He says it a few different times in our narrative. He continues in verse 3. He says, because Jesus knew the Father had handed all things over to him and they'd come from God and he was going back to God. He continues the conversation down at the end of the chapter after they talk about some other things like service in Judas. He says in verse 33, children, I'm still with you for a little while. You will look for me. And just as I said to the Jewish religious leaders, where I'm going, you cannot come. Now I tell you the same. And here's the deal. I think we love to hold on to the things that we love, and we see change as an imminent threat to the things that we love. But in this text, it seems like Jesus says, I love you more than anything else, and that means change is coming because I love you. And so they reacted how you would react. They reacted how my leaders in middle school reacted not well. Look at how Peter responds in verse, um, in verse, well, he responds in, in down at the end of the, the chapter, in verse 36 and 37, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus said, Where I'm going. You can't follow me, but you will later. Verse 37 Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. He doesn't get it. He thought, We've built to this point. We're finally here. We're finally to the thing we've been building to. We're comfortable with each other, and we're learning, and we're growing, and we're good. Why is change happening? Why are you leaving? It doesn't seem very loving for you to leave. And Jesus says, "I have to go." And what Peter's dealing with, what these disciples are dealing with, is they're terrified because the thing they love is being taken away, and that's scary. It's why going to college is hard. I talked to somebody the other day about this, but. You know, that's why these students came back to Tuesday night in the first place, because this was their safe space. And here's what's the hardest part, I think, about college that we don't talk about, is when you send kids off to college, studying's fine, and independence and freedom is good, but what they have to do is find new relationships from week one when you've been building on your old relationships for six or seven years. You don't get that in a week-long orientation. You don't get that when you get hazed by your fraternity. There's no cheap Way to build depth and relationship that only comes through time. Peter and the disciples are terrified because Jesus says he's leaving, and they don't think that's very loving. I remember when my parents dropped me off to college. I, I'm an outgoing person. I like people. I like talking to people. I like new things. One of the scariest moments in my life was when my people, when when my parents dropped me off to college. I was at Moody. I was in Chicago. It was a long way away, and I remember where I stood. I remember how I felt. I was not a big, like, let's hang out with my parents on the weekend guy. That wasn't my M.O. I was more of a, let me get away from my parents as far as possible. Chicago, awesome, you know. And I went to this college, and I showed up, and I didn't know anybody. And, and um, you know, I, I kind of looked a little different. I had, I had long hair, and you weren't supposed to have long hair at Moody. It couldn't cover your ears, because that's how you heard the gospel. I just made that up. Um, <laughs> so, and I was supposed to cut it, and I didn't because I was a rebel. You know, that kind of sort of thing. And some people would stare. And... uh I remember it was pretty apparent early on that that, that I was a little different than the moody kids, um, for better and worse. And I remember where we were, right outside this plaza area, and I remember my parents saying goodbye. And I remember I was terrified. And if you ask my mom to this day, she can say, oh, it's the scariest I've ever seen you. (laughs) And they looked at me and they said, we're going to go now. And I I mean, I wasn't going to say it out loud because I was not going to admit that I was afraid of something as an 18-year-old man. But I was terrified. And my eyes said, please, please, God, don't leave me here. You know? (laughs) I don't know these people. I don't know if I like them. I don't know anything about this place. It was hard. My dad shook my hand. He said what he always said. He said, remember who you are and remember where you came from. The disciples are terrified because what they love is going to change and be taken away. And so Jesus says to him in chapter 14, he says, don't let your heart be distressed. You believe in God, believe in me also. And what he's speaking to is their terrifiedness. They'd been led by Jesus for three years. They've been only known following Jesus, dust of the rabbi. Peter was one of the ones that actually thought that he could be like Jesus the most. So that's why Heater Jackson says, I'm going with you. He was the one that got out of the boat and walked on the water in the first place. And so when Jesus says, of all people, Peter, you can't do what I'm about to do. I have to leave. The rest of them got terrified. And Jesus looks into that fear and he gives them two imperatives, not questions, not suggestions, two imperatives, meaning do this. He said, believe in God, believe in me also. It was a reminder of what he called do in the first place. It's my dad saying in that moment, remember who you are and remember where you came from. It wasn't a question and it wasn't a suggestion. What Jesus did is so that moment when we're scared because change is imminent in that moment when we're scared because change happens and that moment when love sometimes is a catalyst for change and doesn't hold on because that's what it does at times in those moments. Remember what you know, not what you feel. And so he looks at the disciples and he says don't be distressed, believe in me. And then he says this is why it's happening. Verse 2 and 3 He says, there are many dwelling places in my father's house. Otherwise, I would have told you because I'm going away to make ready a place for you. And if I go and make ready a place for you, I will come again and take you to be with me so that where I am, you may be too. And so the disciples are terrified at this point. They're greatly distressed. It says their hearts are, which is the center of all their being is distressed. And he speaks to them and says, I have a purpose here. That's what Peter didn't see. Peter saw the scene and the story but not the whole thing and Jesus says, I see what's next and you don't and because I love you I have to do this so we can get to what's next and so in this current context he's saying, I gotta go to the cross so that you can move into my dad's house That's how you get access in there. We sometimes talk about heaven in casual conversations or it's written about in articles and we talk about like we joke I'm gonna have a big mansion in heaven and that kind of misses the point that phrasing kind of comes from this word it's wrong we don't get mansions in heaven if we did it'd be all about where we live and not who we live with and the point is in heaven who we live with that being Jesus yeah Uh, So when it says mansions in the first century context, literally what it meant was rooms in a house. There's a commentator, and he says it like this. The imagery of a dwelling place, rooms, is taken from the oriental house in which the sons and daughters have apartments under the same roof as their parents. So if you have a millennial kid and they're moving back home, they're just trying to be like Jesus, right? (laughs) Tell them that. (laughs) I doubt we're going to lead with that when we get home. (laughs) So it says, I'm going to go and prepare a house for you guys, a dwelling place in my father's house. And what he means by that, just so we're not confused, is he's going to go and wait for the right time to come back. What he's doing is appealing to kind of the tradition of Jewish engagements. He's not up there like putting up sheetrock because he's a carpenter, right? It's a Jesus joke for everybody right there. So he's, he's in heaven and he's waiting for God to say, go back and get him now. And what he means by that is in the first century world, when you engaged to somebody, when you got engaged, you went to them, and you went to their family, and you said, I want this woman to be my bride. And they'd say, okay, and you'd talk to the father. And then you'd arrange a price, and he'd say, I want this much. And you'd say, I'm going to give you seven goats and three plots of land for your daughter. And the dad would say, I thought she was worth five goats. Done, you know? And then you would sign a deal or a contract, and you'd go away. And you'd go away, and you'd build the house you're going to live in. You'd build your room and your apartment. And then when it was finished, when everything was perfect, you would march down the street and go get your bride. So when he says, I'm going to prepare a place, what he means, he's using imagery from the first century world to say, I'm going away until the perfect time to come and get you to where you and I can live together again. Because there is a greater good. There's a greater good that I have for you. And because I want your greatest good, I have to leave you now. That's what love looks like, you know? And then we find the tension right there, right? Between these moments that we don't want to end and the greater good that comes from the moments. It's like engagements in our culture. I don't know what it was like when you got engaged, but I live in the middle of you have to sell your engagement story on Instagram and it's got to be the most beautiful ever. You're judged by the number of candles and doves, okay? And so I got engaged on this rooftop in New York City just to outdo all my friends because I am competitive. And that moment is beautiful. And when you get engaged in this kind of way, no matter where it's at, if it's at a park bench of a park you love or something elaborate, it's a great moment that you want to soak in. If you get engaged as somebody you love, you love that moment. You don't want to leave that moment. And there's the tension of not leaving the moment but recognizing the moment's good because of what's promised in the future, Engagements are good not because you want to be engaged for the rest of your life. That is miserable. Engagement's good because of the future hope of the promise of what marriage is. So Jesus comes to his people and he says, I'm signing a contract that I'm going to fill. And why it's good now at this space and this time and this meal is because of what's going to happen. So he says, I'm going to go do something, and then he says, There's also more good news. He says, we have to find what's better, and we're not going to get there if we stay here, so I'm going to leave, and when I leave, I'm going to give you something. It's the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 16 of chapter 14, where he picks up the conversation again. He says, then I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot accept, because it does not see him or know him. So when it says advocate there, that word is interesting. It's only found really two times in the Greek New Testament, um, and 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 sometimes it's translated different ways in different Bibles because we don't have a one-to-one translation for it. So a lot of times it's translated comforter, and I don't really love that translation because comforter implies somebody that's there for you that has compassion that listens but doesn't do anything to fix. Comforter is an old sweater that you love that makes you feel and remember what home is when you miss it, but it doesn't actually take you back there or do anything to forward kind of the reconciliation efforts that the Holy Spirit does. Sometimes we translate it counselor, and counselor's fine. It's just really, really broad and carries with it the notions of suggestions but not authority. Sometimes we use the word in our Bibles, helpers there, and that's good, but helper oftentimes connotates subordination, and there's no subordination in the Holy Spirit. So God says, I'm going to give you part of my trinity to go with you. Jesus actually uses um, this same term the other time in the New Testament to talk about himself. He says, but if anyone does sin in 1 John 2, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. What he means when he says advocate is you are getting somebody that fights for you to restore and repair what is broken. So he doesn't use comfort, but he has the power to make it better. We've got to have both those. Constable says it like this, he's a theologian, he says this new relationship with the Holy Spirit is one of the distinctive differences between the church age and the former dispensations or times. It's a blessing few Christians appreciate as we should. And here's why. Because it says in verse 26, here's what the advocate does. Jesus says, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and will cause you to remember everything I said to you. He will teach you and cause you to remember the advocate, whom I said will teach you and cause you to remember and reside in you. And so a couple things, just as a brief one-off, a little side note of the theology of the Holy Spirit, part of the role of the Holy Spirit is to connect dots that you wouldn't have connected before. So he says, here's what the Holy Spirit does. I'm going to leave and there's going to be some things that aren't going to make sense. But the Holy Spirit's going to come into the world and they're going to make sense when you look back on them now. We see it in John chapter twelve. It says his disciples didn't understand these things when they first happened, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered the things that were written about him and these things that happened to them. It connected dots one to two. It filled in gaps because it was their advocate. This last week, my check engine light came on my car. You know, because my car hates me. Okay, and. When my check engine light comes on in my car, it I, doesn't happen much. It's actually the first time, and, and I get a little terrified, not because I'm afraid of my car breaking. I have this small fear that it's going like to explode at some point because I don't speak car in any way. Mostly, I'm terrified that I'm going to be the guy on 635 that causes the backup to Oklahoma, you know? I don't like those people. When I drive by wrecks, I am not full of compassion. I'm full of really anger that you caused three minutes to be added to my drive. I'm working on it, everybody. All right? So I'm terrified I'm going to break down on the highway and cause this massive backup and feel guilt and shame for everybody that drives by and looks at me. And you say, I'm so sorry, you know? So I went to O'Reilly's because they got this magic device you plug in somewhere to your car that I didn't think has a plug, and it brings you back a code. Here's the problem. I overcompensate because I probably have a pride issue. So when I go to places like Home Depot and a car sh- you know, store, I pretend like I know what I'm doing. I pretend like I belong there, all right? So this guy comes up to my car, and he plugs in this code box, to this part of my car I didn't know existed, and I'm pretending like I know what's going on. He goes, okay. I follow him inside, and he said, yeah, it's going to be a two four seven. I said, of course it is. That's what I thought, <laughs> you know? And I said, yeah, yeah, I figured it was that way. You know, I'm like bowing out my chest and I'm trying to drop my voice and make it raspy. Like, well, I'm doing my best Tim Allen from Home Improvement because that's what I grew up on, you know? And he said, uh, yeah, so you know what you're going to do? I said, ah, can you print that off for me? And maybe, and he said, I can't, but I can show it to you on the screen. I said, great. So he pulls up the screen and on it has, like, the, the reason why this thing is breaking and, and, like, the most possible fix. And he goes, yeah, it looks like, sorry, bud, it looks like you're going to need a new catalytic converter. I said, that's what I thought. I was afraid of that. Okay, fantastic. And then I pretended to say something knowledgeable and walked out. I get back to CBC a couple minutes later, and I say, Doug, I need some help. Doug Harbord is our facility guy. He knows a lot about cars. He works with them. I said, Doug, what's a catalytic converter? I said... <laughs> Is my car going to explode when I drive it home? How long can I drive on it? And how do you fix one of these bad boys, right? And Doug said, oh, my gosh. I said, because it's a problem. And I pretended like I knew what I was doing, right? So what Doug did was he walked me through. He said, this is what a catalytic converter is. This is what your car is going through. Yeah, you can drive it. It's not going to explode. And this is how you fix it, and this is where it go, right? In that moment, what Doug was was my advocate when I couldn't fill in the gaps from one to two. In that moment, what Dudd did was he took information that I didn't think made sense, he made sense of it. And he said, this is how we move forward and make it better. The Holy Spirit is our advocate. And the beauty of the power of the Holy Spirit is he doesn't just bring us into the presence of God everywhere we go, making sense of ones and twos, and we wouldn't connect the dots, but he resides in and with us. It says in verse 16 and 17, you know him because he resides with you and will be in you. It's this depiction that God goes with us everywhere we go. And that's important because what Jesus was asking them to do was hard. He was about to tell them that your job when I'm gone is to go everywhere and tell everybody about what you've seen and heard. There's a study that came out two weeks ago, Barna Group released it, it might have been a month ago, and essentially it said that 47% of millennials and younger think it's wrong to share your faith and they're afraid of it, right? They said they think it's wrong to share your faith if you're trying to share your faith with somebody else to get them to believe what you believe. It's hard to share our faith. It's hard to talk to people what Jesus does in our life. It's hard because people get offended. It's hard because we're talking about personal things like belief. It's very, very difficult. It's hard for us now. Back then when you did it, you lost limbs and family members and lives. And because of that, now and then, we need the power of the Holy Spirit to go with us to empower us to do the things that we couldn't do otherwise. Jesus says, this is the good news. I'm going away so that you get my presence and power every step of everywhere you go. I couldn't do that for you. That's not my role in the Trinity. That's the Holy Spirit's role. And now you have it. And it's why Jesus goes on to say in chapter 16, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go. For I do not go away, if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus says it's better that we have the Holy Spirit. J.D. Greer is a pastor that I like, and he says the spirit inside you is better than Jesus beside you. We get to live in this reality that nobody's lived in before the age of the Holy Spirit. We get God with us all the time. We get the presence of God and the power of God with us with every step as we take the message of God into his world. And Jesus says that's better. He says, I'm leaving because I love you, because I know it's better for you. He says, I'm leaving because there's something else that you don't know that's coming that you need, even if it's hard and it doesn't look like love. Greater love cares about the other person's highest good, even if we can't see it. (laughs) So today we're talking about love, and Jesus' greater love is a simple idea that it sees with perspective in mind. And sometimes that means it starts change especially those moments that we don't want it to change because we love it so much so I had these leaders in my office and I said you guys I think you need to find a new home to serve on Tuesday nights (laughs) and he um now these leaders looked at me and they kind of couldn't believe it and you could tell I didn't this is all my fault by the way I I was new at leading things, and I did a bad job of this. I should have taken them out one by one, like to coffee and built trust and had some social equity and gotten them to know that I really care about them. Um, they didn't know that. And so when I told them that we're moving on, they didn't take it as an act of love, <laughs> you know? And so one of them actually looked at me. I'd known him. Small, small world, but he used to babysit this kid back in the day. And he said, so wait, can I come back next week? And I looked at him, I said, no, you know? And again, they're thinking, this is my church who's this new guy. He's been here seven months. I've been here seven years, you know. And I said, for two reasons. One is, I know this has been a good space for you, but your role is not as a high school leader anymore to middle school kids. You're in college. You need to go and grow, right? That's what greater love does. Is it, it let go so that we might grow. And I said, you Your role is to take the gospel to your college and in that community, and if you keep coming back here, I'm afraid you won't grow there. I said, secondarily, we've got a crop of seniors that want to lead. They want to grow like you grew, and if you're here, they won't. They won't, because you're still here. And so... As we walk through the whys, as we walk through the larger perspective, as we walk through this is why I need change to happen, what they didn't see was that change equaled love. They saw that change equaled hate. And I'm sorry about that. I'd go back and I'd redo it, but I wouldn't redo the decision. And that's what happens to us sometimes. Is we find things that we really love that are really good, and that's why they're good, and that's why we love them, because they're good, and so we hold on with everything we have. You know, We do it all the time. As a church, we say, man, I just wish I lived in the time of Jesus. I wish I walked with Jesus. And that's really good. If you ask me who my five people are, alive or dead, that I want to have a meal with, he's on that list. He's probably number one, right? And, and what we say is, I wish I could have been alive at the time of Jesus. Man, that's tough because Jesus says, now is better for believers, and they didn't have indoor plumbing, you know? It would have been very difficult. As a church, all the time, we say, I wish we could be like the church in Acts 2. I wish we could live like the church in Acts 2. And here's the deal. I want to take principles from them, but understand that where we're at now is the grace of God and might be better. Because I love the Acts 2 church. I want to pray like they did and learn like they did, but I don't want to move in with all you people, okay? (laughs) They gave up everything and moved in together. And I love you, but that's a different kind of love I'm working towards and on, you know? And so sometimes we hold on to what we love and what's better for us if we let go so that we might grow. Greater love really is about the idea that sometimes love is the catalyst for growth. And that's tough because there's a tension there. There's a tension in our text. Because what that doesn't mean is that we forego the grace of the moment, you know? So when I'm sitting there holding my kid and my wife just says, don't grow, that doesn't mean that we're so worried about the future that we don't soak in the beauty of that Saturday afternoon with our six-month-old child. That doesn't mean that Jesus didn't soak in the two or three hour dinner he had with his disciples before he left and when did something really hard. That doesn't mean you don't soak in all the times that you get to serve in places you love. That just means that you realize that this might not stay the same forever and sometimes that's what love looks like. Greater love enjoys the grace of today while moving towards God's better promises for our life tomorrow. That's why we say Crossroads Growing People change. It's not just simply a phrase that we like, it's not just catchy, I hope it is, it's an affirmation of our love for each other, because Jesus says, I love you to the uttermost, and that means I'm leaving you, and we've got to understand why. And so for some of us, um, we hold on a little tight and we don't like change, and the question becomes, are we impeding what God's trying to do, is it the most loving thing we can do, what does love look like if we look at it from a different perspective, you know, so I look at this text and I look what God is doing and I'm thankful for the graces he gives me today. But I want to love in such a way that points the people in my life towards what God is doing tomorrow and the next day and the next day. It's a greater version of love that doesn't just look at the scene but looks at the whole story. And that's how Jesus loves us. And what that means is I'm not afraid of change anymore. <laughs> you know, I see change as hard as it is sometimes as an act of love. God stepping into my life and saying, I'm doing something bigger and better. Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful for how you love us. I'm thankful that sometimes love is soaking in a moment and sometimes it's asking why change is happening. I'm thankful for how you love us. I'm thankful that you love us in such a way that looks at the bigger picture that sees beyond the good of now to the good of tomorrow and the next day. I'm thankful that you love us well. So I pray that as we ask questions about what love looks like in our lives and in our worlds, that we ask questions about where love is leading us to change. (laughs) And not be afraid of it or scared of it, but have courage. Because we believe in you and we believe in God. To not be troubled or dismayed, but know that you are good and you are loving even if life is chaotic and changing. Because sometimes that's what greater love looks like. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.